Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Uh, okay, just a reminder that uh, subscribers to the podcast can now share full episodes by going to the episode page on my website and getting the link. And you can share one-to-one with friends and family, or you can post to social media, whatever you like. Okay. Today I'm speaking with Mustafa Suleiman. Mustafa is the co-founder and CEO of Inflection AI and a venture partner at Greylock, a venture capital firm. Before that, he co-founded DeepMind, which is one of the world's leading artificial intelligence companies, now part of Google. And he was vice president of AI product management and AI policy at Google. And he is also the author of a new book, The Coming Wave, Technology, Power, and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma, which is the focus of today's conversation. We talk about the new book. We talk about the progress that was made in AI by his company, DeepMind, various landmarks they achieved, Atari DQN, AlphaGo, AlphaZero, AlphaFold. We discuss the amazing fact that we now have technology that can invent new knowledge the risks of our making progress in AI, superintelligence as a distraction from more pressing problems, the inevitable spread of general-purpose technology, the nature of intelligence, productivity growth and labor disruption, the containment problem, the importance of scale, open-source LLMs, changing norms of work and leisure, the redistribution of value, introducing friction into the deployment of AI, regulatory capture, the looming possibility of a misinformation apocalypse, digital watermarks, asymmetric threats, conflict and cooperation with China, supply chain monopolies, and other topics. Anyway, it was great to get Mustafa here. He's one of the pioneers in this field. And as you'll hear, he shares many of my concerns, but with different points of emphasis. And now I bring you Mustafa Suleiman. I am here with Mustafa Suleiman. Mustafa, thanks for joining me. Great to be with you, Sam. Thanks for having me. So you you have a new book, which um, the world needs, because this is the problem of our time. The the title is The Coming Wave, Technology, Power, and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma. Uh, And we will get into the book, because um, it's really um, quite a good read. And uh, we will talk about what that coming wave is. But you're especially concerned about AI, which is your um, your wheelhouse, but also you're talking about synthetic biology uh, and to, I guess, a lesser degree, robotics and some other technologies that are going to be more and more present if things don't run totally off the rails for us. But before we, we jump into the book, let's talk about your background. What, how would you describe the bona fides that have, have brought you to this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I started life, I guess, as an entrepreneur. When I was 18, I started my first company, which was a point-of-sale system, uh, sales company, and we, we were sort of installing these, these sort of very early PDAs back in 2002, 2003, and networking equipment. I wasn't successful, uh, but that was my first attempt. I, I dropped out of Oxford uh, at the end of my second year, where I was reading philosophy to start a charity. 
and I helped two or three other people get a telephone counseling service off the ground. It was a secular service for young British Muslims. I was a, a, a just turned an atheist at the time, having mm. been to Oxford, discovered human rights principles and the ideas of universal justice, and uh, managed to sort of move out of the faith and, uh, and decided that I, I, I really wanted to, you know, dedicate my life to, to doing good and, and studying philosophy and the theory uh, was too, too esoteric and, and too distant from action. I'm a very kind of practical, action-focused person. So I spent a couple years doing that. Uh, a little bit after that time, I spent a year or so working in local government as a human rights policy officer for the mayor of London at the time. Uh, I think I was 21 mm. when I started that job. It was very big and exciting, but ultimately quite unsatisfying and frustrating. Who was the mayor? Was that Johnson? That was before Johnson. Yeah, quite a bit before. Uh, it, was, it was Ken Livingston mm. back in 2004. Right. So quite a while back in London. And then from there, I wanted to see how I could scale up my impact in the world. And, um, you know, I, I helped to start a conflict resolution firm. I was very lucky at the age of 22 to be able to co-found this, this consultancy with a group of some of the most practiced uh, uh, negotiation experts in the world. Some of the people who are involved in the peace and reconciliation process in South Africa post-apartheid. And there's a big group of us coming together with very different skills and backgrounds. And uh, I had an incredible three years there working all over the world in in Cyprus and for the Dutch government, for you know, on, on the Israel-Palestine question, uh, you know, many different places, and it was hugely inspiring and taught me a lot about the world. But mm -hmm. I sort of fundamentally realised from there that if I if I didn't get back to technology, I would miss the most important transition, you know, wave, if you like, happening in my lifetime. And uh, you know, I I set about shortly after the climate negotiations that we were working on in 2009 in Copenhagen. Everyone left feeling frustrated and disappointed that we hadn't managed to reach agreement. And this was the year that sort of Obama was coming over and everyone had a lot of hope. And it didn't happen, uh, turns out, for another you know, 10 or 12 years. And I, I sort of had this aha moment. I was like, if I don't get back to technology, then I'm going to miss the most important thing happening. And so I set about on this quest trying to sort of find anyone that any you know anyone who I knew even tangentially who was working in technology and uh, my best friend from when we were teenagers um, his older brother was Demis Asabis hmm. and uh, we, we were playing poker together one night uh, in the Victoria Casino in London and, and we got chatting about the ways that at the time we, you know we framed it as robots were going to transform the world and deliver enormous productivity boosts and improve efficiency in every respect. And we were sort of debating, like, how do you do good in the world? How do you get things done? You know, what, what is the real set of incentives and efforts that really makes a difference? And, um, you know, both very passionate about science and technology and having a positive impact in the world. And, you know, one thing led to another, and eventually we um, ended up starting DeepMind. Uh, I did that for 10 years. Mm. Um, yeah, along with Shane Legg, right? Shane is, uh, is our other co-founder, exactly. Shane was at Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit in London at the time, and he was just finishing, uh, he had just finished his PhD a few years earlier, he was doing postdoctoral research, and his PhD was on definitions of intelligence, 
which was super right. interesting. It was very obscure and really, really relevant. He was sort of trying to synthesize 60 or so different definitions of intelligence and trying, tried to sort of abstract that into an algorithmic construct, one that we could use to measure progress towards some defined goal. And um, his frame was that intelligence is the ability to perform well across a wide range of environments. So the core emphasis was that intelligence was about generality, right? And uh, we, you know, we can get into this. There's lots of different definitions of intelligence, which place emphasis on different aspects of our capabilities. But generality has become the core concept that sort of dominated the field for the last sort of 12, 15 years. And, and of course, the term AGI, I mean, that, that predated Shane, but mm. I think it was very much popularized by our kind of mission, you know, sort of, it was really the first time in a long time that a, a company had been founded to invent general intelligence or AGI. And that was our mission to try and build safe and ethical artificial general intelligence. So I'm trying to remember where we met. I, I know we were both at the Puerto Rico conference at the beginning of 2015 that uh, I think, it, I don't know if it was the first of these meetings, but uh, it was the first that I was aware of that really focused the conversation on AI safety and risk. And I, I, I know I met Demis there. I'm not sure. I, I think you and I met in LA subsequent to that. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think we we met. I can't remember if we met before or after that, but I think we had we had a common interest in our LA conversation. It might have been just before that, talking about extremism and radicalization and terrorism and oh, had, within Islam, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I can't. I don't think we met in Puerto Rico, but that that conference was very formative of my, you know, it was really like my my first impression of of how big a deal this was going to be ultimately. And then there was a subsequent conference in 2017 at Asilomar where I think we, uh, we met right. again. And I think I met Shane there as well. So let, let's, before we jump into, again, the book and what you're doing currently, because you've, you've since moved on from DeepMind and you have a new company that we'll talk about. But um, let's talk about DeepMind because it really was, you know, before it, you know, it's been eclipsed in the popular consciousness by OpenAI of late with, with the advent of ChatGPT and, and uh, large language models. But prior to that, really, DeepMind was the preeminent, uh, may in, in fact still be the preeminent AI company, but it's now a branch of Google. Give, me, give us a little bit of the history there and, and tell us what was accomplished because it, you, you, at DeepMind you had several breakthroughs that were just fundamental, and uh, you really put AI back on the map. And prior to what you did there, we were in an AI so-called AI winter where it was just common knowledge that this artificial intelligence thing wasn't really panning out, and then all of a sudden everything changed. So I think pre-acquisition, um, which was in 2014. I think our, there were probably two principal contributions that we made. I think the first is we made a very early bet on deep learning. I mean, the company was founded in 2010, in the summer of 2010. And it really wasn't for a couple of years that deep learning had even appeared on the, on the field, even academically, uh, with the ImageNet challenge a few years after we founded. Mm -hmm. 
So that was a very significant bet that we made early and that we got right. And the consequence of that was that we were able to hire some of the best PhDs and postdoctoral researchers in the world, you know, who at the time were working on this very obscure, very uninteresting, you know, largely not very valuable subject. In fact, Jeff Hinton was one of our consultants. Uh, so was his student at the time, Ilya Satskiva, who's now chief scientist and co-founder of OpenAI, along with many others from OpenAI and elsewhere who, you know, basically either worked with us full-time or worked with us as, as consultants. And that was largely, you know, reflective of the fact that we got the bet right early on deep learning. The second contribution, I would say, was the combination of deep learning and reinforcement learning. I mean, if, if deep learning was was obscure, reinforcement learning was even more theoretical. And, you know, we were actually quite careful to frame our mission among academics, you know, less around sort of AGI and more around applied machine learning. You know, there was a, certainly in the very early days, we were a bit hush-hush about it. But, you know, as we got more traction in 2011, 2012, it, it became very attractive to people who were otherwise quite theoretical in their outlook to come and work on problems like reinforcement learning in you know, a sort of more engineering-focused setting, albeit still a research lab. And it was the combination of deep learning and reinforcement learning that led to our first, I think, major contribution, which was the Atari DQN AI. DQN. So you know, DQN was a, a pretty incredible system. I mean, it, it essentially learned to play 50 or so of the old school sort of 80s Atari's games, mm -hmm. Atari games, to human level performance, uh, simply from the pixels, learning to correlate a set of rewarding moments in the game uh, via score with a set of frames that led to that score in the run up to that and the actions that were taken there. And that, that was a really significant achievement. It was actually that which caught Larry Page's attention and led him to email us you know, and, and, you know, sort of invite us to come and be part of, of Google. And then Google acquired you. And uh, what was the logic there? You just, it was just good to have Google's resources to scale or? I mean, Larry made a very simple claim, which was, you know, I've spent, you know, the last, you know, 10 years or so building a platform with all the resources necessary to make a really big bet on AGI. You know, why should you guys go through all of that again? You know, we'll give you the freedom you need to carry on operating as a, essentially a, you know, independent subsidiary, even though we were part of Google. Why wouldn't you just come and work with us and have all the resources you need to, to scale, you know, significantly, which is what we did. And it's, it's, it was a very compelling proposition because at the time, you know, monetizing deep learning back in 2014 was, going to be mm -hmm. really tough. So, But Google had its own AI division as well that was just kind of working in parallel with DeepMind. Did, that, did you guys, at some point you guys merged? I don't know if that happened after you left or before, but how, how did that, was there a firewall between the two divisions for a time and then that came down or how'd that work? Yeah. So the division you're referring to is Google Brain, which is run by Jeff Dean. And I think that started in 2015 with Andrew Ng actually as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in some ways that's the kind of beauty of Google's scale, right? That it was able to 
run multiple huge billion dollar efforts in parallel. And the merger, which I think has been long coming, actually only happened this year. Mm-hmm. So Google plus DeepMind is now Google DeepMind. And uh, most of the kind of open-ended research on AI is now consolidated around Google DeepMind and all of the sort of more focused applied research that helps Google products more directly in the short term is, is focused on a, on a separate division, Google Research. Right. So you had those, the, the Atari game breakthrough, which caught everyone's attention because you, you, you have these, you know, if memory serves, you managed to build a system that had, I mean, it achieved human level competence and beyond and also achieved novel strategies that many humans wouldn't come up with. But then the, the real breakthroughs that got everyone's attention were with AlphaGo and AlphaZero and AlphaFold. Perhaps you can run through those because that, that's when, at least to my eye, things just became unignorable in the AI field. Yeah, that that's exactly right. I mean, it, it's 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 pretty interesting because sort of after we got acquired, it was actually Sergey that was sort of insisting that we tackle Go. I mean, his point was, you know, that Go is a massively complex space, and you know, all, all the traditional methods that had previously been used for games before DQN, which essentially involved handcrafting rule-based features, which is is really what drove the work behind. Deep Blue, IBM's mm-hmm. uh, model, you know, a long time ago, 97, I think it was. You know, Go has something like 10 to the power of 170 possible configurations of the board. So it's a 19 by 19 board with black and white stones. And the rules are very simple. It's a turn-based game where each player simply moves, one place, places one stone on the board. Um, and when you surround your opponent's stones, you remove them from the board. And the, the goal is to sort of surround your opponent. And so it, it is a very simple rule set, but it's a massively complicated possible set of different configurations that can emerge. And so you, you can't sort of search all possible branches of, of, of that space because it's so enormous. Yeah. I mean, 10 to the 170 is like more atoms than there are in the known universe, approximately. Yeah, yeah. I, think that's, I think it's something like 10 to the 80 that gets you all the protons in the universe. So yeah, there's... It gets bigger still when you're talking right. about Go, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, and so, so this needed a new suite of methods. And, you know, I think it was an incredible experience seeing AlphaGo progressively get better and better. I mean, we, we already had an inkling for this when we saw it play the Atari games, but this was just seismically more complicated and vast. And yet it was using the same basic principle, actually the same principle that has subsequently been applied in, in protein folding too. So, you know, the, I, th- I think that's what's really interesting about this is that it's the generality of the ideas that simply scale with more compute, you know, because a, a couple of years later, AlphaGo became AlphaZero, which essentially achieved superhuman performance without any, le- without any learning from prior games. So, you know, part of the trick with AlphaGo is that it, it looked at hundreds of thousands of prior games. It's almost like the expert knowledge of existing players that has been handed down for centuries of playing the game. Whereas AlphaZero was able to learn entirely through self-play, you know, almost like I think the intuition is spawning instances of itself in order Mm. to play against itself 
in simulated environments many, many hundreds of millions of billions of times, way more. Uh, it turns out to be way more valuable than bootstrapping itself from the first principles of human knowledge, which, if you think about the size of the state space, represents you know, a minor subset of all possible configurations of that board. And that, that was a kind of remarkable insight. And, and actually, it did the same thing for, for other games, including chess and shogi and so on. Mm. Yeah, that's a really fascinating development where it's, it's now uncoupled from the repository of human knowledge. It plays itself, and over the course of, I think it was just a day of self-play, it was better than, than AlphaGo and any other system, right? Right, that's exactly right. And, and obviously that's partly a function of compute, but the basic principle gives an important intuition, which is that because these methods are so general, they can be paralyzed and scaled up. And that means that, you know, we can sort of take advantage of all of the, you know, traditional assets of, you know, computing infrastructure rather than relying on, you know, old school methods, you know, perfect memory, parallelizable compute, you know, Moore's law, you know, daisy chaining compute together, just like we do with, with, with GPUs these days. So, you know, in some ways that's, a, that's the key intuition because it means the sort of barrier to application of the quality of the algorithm is lower because it's turbocharged by all these other underlying drivers which are also improving the power and performance of these models. Mm -hmm. And um, also AlphaZero, in, when, when it was playing the world champion, came up with a move that, you know, all Go experts thought they immediately recognized as a mistake, but then when the game played out, it turned out to be this brilliant novel move that no human would have made, and it just a piece of discovered Go knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember sitting in the commentary room live watching that unfold and uh, listening to the commentator, who was himself a nine-dan uh, you know, expert, say that it was a mistake. He was mm. like, oh no, we lost. And uh, it, it took 15 minutes for you know, him to correct that and, and sort of come back and, and reflect on it. It was a really remarkable moment. And actually, it, you know, for me, it was a great inspiration you know, because this is why we, we started the company. I mean, the quest was to try to invent new knowledge. I mean, our, our goal here is to try to design algorithms that can teach us something that we don't know. Um, not just reproduce existing knowledge and synthesize information in new ways, but genuinely discover new strategies or new molecules or you know new compounds, new ideas, and contribute to the you know the the kind of well of of human knowledge and capability. And you know this was a kind of first. Well, actually, it was the second indication because the first instinct I got for that was watching the Atari games player learn mm -hmm. new strategies from scratch. And this this was kind of the second, I think. And what about Alpha Fold? Because this is a, a very different application of the same technology. What, what, what did you guys do there and what was the, the project? Well, protein folding is a long-standing challenge. And we actually started working on this as a hackathon, which started in my group back in 2016. And it was really just an experiment to see if you know, some of the AlphaGo models could, could actually make progress here. And the basic idea is that if you can sort of generate, you know, an, an example of the way a protein folds, this folding structure represents, might tell you something about 
you know, the, 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 the value of that molecule in practice, what it can do, what, you know, what its strengths and weaknesses are and so on. And so, you know, it, the, the nice thing about it is because it operated in a simulated environment, it was, it was quite similar to some of the games that we had been playing, you know, t- teaching our models to, to play. And, you know, previously the experiments had done something like 190,000 proteins, um, which was about 0.1% of, the, of all the proteins in existence. But, but in, in AlphaFold 2, the team actually open sourced something like 200 million protein structures all in one go, which is sort of all, all known proteins. So this is a massive breakthrough mm. that took, you know, four or five years of, of work in development. And, and I think just gives a, an indication of the kinds of things that become possible with these sorts of methods. Yeah, I forget. Someone gave a, well, what purported to be a kind of a straightforward comparison between what AlphaFold did there and the academic years of PhD theses. And it was something like, you know, 200 million PhD theses got accomplished in a few years there uh, in terms of solving those protein folding problems. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, those kinds of insights, are, those kinds of sort of compressions are similar to, you know, across the board with many technologies. Like I, another one that's sort of similar to that is that the amount of, of sort of labor that once produced 50 minutes of, of light in the 18th century, you know, now produces 50 years worth of light. Mm. And, and that just gives a, 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 a sense for how technology has this massive compressive effect that is hugely leveraging in terms of what we can do. Yeah, there's, there's another crazy analogy in your book talking about the size of these, uh, the parameters of these new large language models, which we'll get to, but I, the comparison was something like executing all of these floating point operations. It's, it's if, you know, if every operation were a drop of water, you know, the largest large language models execute as many calculations as would fit into the entire Pacific Ocean. So it's just the right. scale is, is astounding. Right. So your book is, was a bit of a surprise for me because you are more worried than I realized about how all of this can go wrong. And I, I, I got the sense in, you and I haven't spoken very much, but in talking to you and Demis and Shane, I got the sense that and this, these conversations are you know, now several years old, that you were more sanguine about our solving all of the relevant problems, you know, alignment being the chief among them, but other concerns of bad incentives and arms race conditions and et cetera. That you, were, you all were putting a fairly brave face on, on a problem that was making many of us increasingly shrill and, you know, not to say hysterical. Um, and so th- w- there were, you know, I, I guess the most hysterical voice of the moment is someone like Eliezer Yudkowsky. And there was obviously Nick Bostrom and others who, who were, you know, issuing fairly grave warnings about how it was more likely than not that we were going to screw this up and build something that we really can't control ultimately and that would, could well destroy us. And on the way to the worst possible outcome. There are many bad, very likely outcomes, like you know, a, a misinformation apocalypse and other um, risks. But in your book, you're you don't give the risks short shrift. I mean, you're really you do seem to suggest that, and certainly when you add in the 
the attendant risks of, of synthetic biology here, which we'll talk about, you are quite worried, and yet there's no, as you agree with a point I made uh, early on here, which is that, you know, as worried as, you, as we are, there really is no break to pull. I mean, the incentives are such that we're going to build this, and so we have to sort of figure out how to repair the, the, the rocket as it's taking off and align it properly as it's taking off, because there's just no, there's no getting off this ride at the moment despite the fact that people are calling for a, a moratorium, or some people are. So I'm just, I guess, what, before we jump into the book, when did you get worried? Were you, were you, were you, were you always worried, or um, are you among the newly worried? People like Jeff Hinton, who, I mean, like, so just like Jeffrey Hinton, who you, who you mentioned, is really the godfather of this technology, and he just recently resigned from Google so that he could express his worries in public, and he seems to have just become worried in the presence of these you know, large language models. And it's quite inscrutable to me that he suddenly had this change of heart because, you know, in my view, the basis for this concern was always self-evident. So give me the, the memoir of your concerns here. Yeah, so this is not a new consideration for me. I, I've been worried about this from you know the the very first days when we founded the company, and you know, in fact, our our, our strapline on our business plan that we took to Silicon Valley in 2010 was building artificial general intelligence safely and ethically for the benefit of everyone, and that was something that was critical to me all the way through. When we when we sold the company, we made it a condition of the acquisition that we have an ethics and safety board with some independent members overseeing technology in the public interest that we, our technologies wouldn't be used for military purposes like lethal autonomous weapons or surveillance by the state you know and and since then at google i you know went through lots and lots of different efforts to experiment with different kinds of oversight boards and charters and external scrutiny and independent audits and all kinds of things and so i say i definitely been top of mind for me all the way through. I think where I diverge from the sort of Bostrom camp a bit is that I think that the language around superintelligence has actually been a bit of a distraction. And I think it was quite obviously a distraction from, from fairly early on. I think that the focus on this, you know, sort of intelligence explosion, this AI that recursively self-improves and suddenly takes over everybody and turns the world to paperclips, I think has consumed way more time than the idea justifies. And that actually, I think there's a bunch of more near-term, very practical things that we should be concerned about. They don't, they shouldn't create shrill alarmism or panic. But they are real consequences that if we don't take them seriously, then they have the potential to cause, you know, serious harm. And, and if, if, if we continue down this path of complete openness without any, you know, sort of checks and balances on how this technology arrives in the world, then essentially it has the potential to cause a great deal of chaos. And I'm not talking about AIs running out of control and, you know, and robots and so on. I'm, I'm really talking about you know, massively amplifying the spread of, of misinformation mm -hmm. and more generally reducing the power, reducing the barrier to entry to be able to exercise power. That, that is fundamentally what this technology is. I mean, in my book, I have a framing 
which I think is more helpful around a, a modern Turing test, one that evaluates capabilities, like what can an AI do? And I think that we should be much more focused on what it can do rather than what it can say, right? What it can say is important and it has huge influence, but it, increasingly it's going to have capabilities. And so an artificial capable intelligence, an ACI, is something that has the potential not just to influence and persuade, but also to learn to use APIs and initiate actions, queries, calls in third-party environments. It'll be able to use browsers and parse the pixels on the browser to be able to click buttons and take actions in those environments. It'll be able to call, you know, phone up and speak to, communicate with other AIs and other humans. So, you know, these technologies are getting smaller and smaller and more and more capable, are getting cheaper to build. And so if you look out over a 10 to 20 year period, I think the story is one of a proliferation of power in the conventional sense, not so much an intelligence explosion, which, by the way, just for the record, I think is an important thing for us to think about. And I care very deeply about existential risk and AGI safety. But I think that the more practical risks are not getting enough consideration. And that's actually a big part of the book. In no way does that make me a pessimist. I mean, I'm absolutely an optimist. I'm hopeful and positive about technology. I want to build things to make, you know, people's lives better and to help us create more value in the world and, and reduce suffering. And I think that's the true upside of these technologies. And we will be able to deliver them on that upside. But no technology comes without risk, and, and we have to consciously and proactively, you know, attend to the downsides. You know, otherwise, you know, we haven't really achieved our, our full objective, and that's the purpose mm. of speaking up about it. Well, before we get into details about the downsides, let's talk about how this might go well. Uh, I guess before we talk about the upside. Let's just define the terms in the title of your book. The title is The Coming Wave. What is the coming wave? So when you look back over the millennia, there have been waves of general purpose technologies from fire to the invention of the wheel to electricity. And each of these waves, to the extent that they have been lasting and valuable, are general purpose technologies which enable other technologies. And that's what makes them a wave. They're enablers of other activity, their general purpose in nature. And as they get more useful, naturally, people experiment with them, they iterate, they invent, they adapt them, and they get cheaper and easier to use. And that's how they proliferate. So in the history of technologies, all technologies that have been useful that are real general purpose technologies have spread far and wide and got cheaper. And almost universally, that is an incredibly good thing. It, it has transformed our world. And I think that that's an important but very simple concept to grasp, because if that is a law of technology, if it is a fundamental property of the evolution of technology, which I'm arguing it is, then that has real consequences for the next wave, because the next wave is a wave of intelligence and of life itself. Right? So intelligence is the ability to take actions. It is the ability to synthesize information, make predictions, and affect the world around you. So it's almost the definition of, of power. 
And everything that is in our visual sphere, everything in our world, if you look around you at this very minute today, has been affected in a very material way by intelligence. It is the thing that has produced all of the value and all of the products and all of the, you know, affected the landscape that you can see around you in a huge way. And so the prospect of being able to distill what makes us unique as a species into an algorithmic construct that can benefit from being scaled up and paralyzed, that can benefit from perfect memory and compute and consuming vast amounts of, of data, trillions of words of data, is, is enormous. I mean, that, that in itself is, is almost like, you know, gold. It's, it's like being able, it's like alchemy. It's, it's like being able to capture the essence of what has made us capable and add more knowledge and, you know, essentially science and technology into the, the human ecosystem. So imagine that everybody will now in the future, in 10 years, 15 years, have access to the very best, you know, doctor in the world, the very best educator, you know, the very best personal assistant and chief of staff. And any one of these roles, I think, is going to be very, very widely available to billions of people. You know, people often say to me, well, you know, is it, aren't the rich going to benefit first? Or is it going to be unfair in terms of access? You know, yes, for a period of time, that's true. But we're actually living in one of the most meritocratic moments in the history of our species. Every single one of us, no matter how wealthy you are, every one of us in the Western world, really the top 2 billion people on the planet, have access to the same smartphone. Mm -hmm. right? No matter how much you earn, you cannot buy a smartphone or a laptop that is better than the very richest. That's an unbelievably meritocratic moment to, that is worth really meditating on. And that is largely a function of these exponentials. You know, the cost of chips has exponentially declined over the last 70 years, and that's driven mass proliferation. And if intelligence and life are subject to those same exponentials, which I think they are, over the next two to three decades, then the primary trend that we have to cope with in terms of our culture and our politics and commerce is this idea that intelligence, the ability to get stuff done, is about to proliferate. And that's going to produce a, a Cambrian explosion of productivity. Everybody is going to get access to a tool that enables them to pursue their agenda, to make us all smarter and more productive and more capable. So I, I think it might be one of the most productive periods in, in the history of, of, of humanity. And, and I think, of course, the challenge there is that it, it may also be one of the most unstable mm -hmm. over the next 20 years. Yeah, so the, that um, cornucopia image immediately begets the downside concern of massive labor disruption, which um, many people doubt in principle they just think that we've we've learned over the course of the last 200 years of technological advancement and economic thinking that there is no such thing as a true canceling of a need for human labor uh, and so people draw the obvious analogies from agriculture and other you know previous periods of of uh, labor disruption and s conclude that this time is no different and we, we will while there might be a few hiccups, what's going to happen here is that all of these productivity gains and job-canceling innovations born of AI 
will just open new lanes for uh, human creativity, and there'll be better jobs. And you know, we're just as we were happy to get rid of jobs in agriculture and coal mines and open them up in in the service sector, we're going to do the same with AI. I remain quite skeptical of uh, that this time is the same, given the nature of the technology. This is, this is the first, as you just said, this is the first moment where we are envisioning a technology which is a true replacement for human intelligence. At every, if we're talking about general intelligence and we're talking about the competence that you just described, the ability to do things in addition to saying things, where we are talking about the cancellation of uh, human work, at least in principle, and you know, strangely, I mean, this is not a, not a terrible surprise now, but it would have been a surprise probably twenty years ago. This is coming for the higher cognitive, higher status, white collar jobs before it's coming for blue collar jobs. How do you view the prospect of labor disruption here and? How uh, confident are you that everyone can be um, retrained with their um, nearly omniscient AI assistants and chiefs of staffs and uh, find something w- worth doing that other people will pay them to do? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you. I've, I've long been skeptical of people who've said that, you know, this will be just like the agricultural revolution or, you know, this will be like the horse and cart. and 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 cars, you know, people will have more wealth, the productivity will will drive wealth creation, and then that wealth creation will drive demand for new products. And we couldn't possibly imagine, you know, what people are going to want to consume and, and what people are going to create with this new wealth and new time. And and that, that's typically how the argument goes. And, and I, I've never found that compelling. I mean, I, I think that if you, if you look at it, it's been quite predictable the last decade. I mean, these models are deliberately trying to replace human cognitive abilities. In fact, they have been slowly climbing the ladder of, of, of human cognitive abilities for many years. I mean, we started with image recognition um, and audio recognition and then moved on to you know, audio generation, image generation, and then text you know, understanding, text recognition, and then now text generation. And, you know, it was kind of interesting because if you think even just two or three years ago, people would have said, well, AIs will, will, will never be creative. That's not achievable. You know, the, the, that, that creativity will always be the preserve of, of humans and, and, and judgment is somehow unique and special to what it means to be human. Or like, you know, AIs will never have empathy. We'll always be able to do care work and, you know, emotional care is, is something that's special. You can never replace that connection. I mean, both of those are now self-evidently not, not true and I mm. think have been quite predictable. So I think that the, the, way to, the honest way to look at this is that these are only temporarily augmenting of human intelligence. If you think about the trajectory over 30 years, I mean, let's not quibble over whether it's five years, 10 years or 15 years. Just think about it long term. I think we can all agree long term. If these exponential trajectories continue, then you know, they're, they're, they're clearly only temporarily going to turbocharge an existing human. And so we have to really think, okay, long term, what does it mean to have systems that are this powerful, this cheap, this widely proliferated, 
And that's where I think the, the broad concept I have in the book of containment comes in, because you can start to get an intuition for you know, the, the massive consequences of the spread of this kind of power, and then start to think about what are, the, what are the sorts of things we would want to do about it. Because on the face of it, like you said earlier, the incentives are absolutely overwhelming. I mean, technology has always been a machine of, of, of statecraft. It's been used by militaries and used by nation states to serve citizens and dr drive us forward. And now it is the fundamental driving force of nation states, you know, being commercially competitive, having the best companies, having the best labor market that drives our competitive edge. You know, so from a state perspective, a nation state perspective, you know, from an individual scientific perspective, the huge drive to explore, invent and discover. And of course, from a, a commercial perspective, the, you know, the, the, the profit incentive is, is phenomenal. And all of these are good things, provided they can be well managed and provided we can mitigate the downsides. And I think we have to be focused on those downsides and not be afraid to talk about them. I mean, you know, so I definitely experience when I bring up these topics over, over the years, this kind of what I describe in the book as a pessimism aversion. You know, there's, mm. there's people who are just, just sort of constitutionally unable to have a dark conversation about how things may go wrong. And, I, and I'll get accused of like not being an optimist or something as though that's like a, you know, a sin or something, or, or, or that being a pessimist or an optimist is somehow, you know, a good way of framing things. To me, both are biased. I'm just observing you know, the, the kind of facts as I see them. And I think that's an important sort of misconception and, and unhelpful framing of pessimism and, and optimism because we have to start with our best assessment of the facts and try to reject those facts if they're you know, inaccurate in some way and then, then try to collectively predict what the consequences are going to be like. And I think you know, it's a sort of another trend over the last sort of decade or so. People, you know, Post-financial crisis, I feel like people, public intellectuals and elites in general and everyone in general has sort of just like, got a bit allergic to predictions, right? We've got a bit scared of being wrong. And I think that that's another thing that we've got to shed. So we've got to focus on trying to make some of these predictions. They may be wrong. You know, I may have got this completely wrong, but it's important to lay out a case for what might happen and start taking steps towards, you know, mitigation and adaptation. Mm. Well, you invoke the concept of containment, which uh, does a lot of work in the book, and you have this phrase, the containment problem that you use throughout. What is the containment problem? In its most basic form, the idea of containment is that we should be able to demonstrate to ourselves that technologies that we invent should always be accountable to humans and within our control. So it's the ability to close down or constrain or limit a new technology at any stage of its development or deployment. And you know that's that's a grand claim, but actually put in the most simple terms, it basically says we shouldn't allow technologies to run out of our control, right? If we can't say what destiny we want for how a technology impacts our species, then we're at the mercy of it, right? And I think I think the the the, the idea is if if we if we don't have mechanisms to shape that and restrict its capabilities, then it potentially leads us into some, some quite catastrophic outcomes over a 30-year 30 30 period. Do you think we've lost the moment already? I mean, it seems like the, the digital genie is, is more or less out of the bottle. I mean, this is something that, I mean, if anything surprised me and 
I know certainly surprised the people who were, were mo- more focused on, on AI safety, and again, people like Yudkowsky in recent developments around these LLMs, was that we missed a moment that many of us more or less expected, or more or less sure was coming, which was there'd be a breakthrough at some company like DeepMind where we would, you know, the, the people building the technology would recognize that they had finally gotten into the end zone or close enough to it so that they're now in the presence of something that's fundamentally different than anything that's come before. And there'd be this question, okay, is this safe to work with? Is, is, is this safe to release into the wild? Is this safe to create an API for? Is this safe? And, you know, so this, the, the idea was that the, you'd have this you know, digital oracle you know, in, in a box that would, be, um, you know, would already yeah. have been air-gapped from the internet and incapable of doing anything until we let it out. And then the question would be, have we, have we done enough safety testing to let it out? But now it's pretty clear that Everything is already more or less out, and we're building our most powerful models already in the wild, right? And they're yeah. already hooked up to things, and they're, they already have millions of people playing with them, and they're, they're open source versions of the next best model. And so is containment even a dream at this point? So it's definitely not too late. We're a long, long way away. This is really just the beginning. Uh, you know, I, I, we, we have plenty of time to address this. And the more that these models and these ideas happen in the open, the more they can be scrutinized and they can be pressure tested and held accountable. So I think it's great that they're happening in open source at the moment. So, so you, th- you like Sam Altman's, this is, this is what Sam has always said, that the, yeah. the philosophy behind OpenAI is do this stuff out in the open, let people play with it, and we will learn a lot as we get closer and closer to building something that we have to worry about. I, I think that we have to be humble about the practical reality about how these things emerge, right? So the initial framing that it was going to be possible to invent this Oracle AI that stays in a box, and we'll just probe it and poke it and test it until we can prove that it's you know, going to be safe. and that will stay in the bunker and keep it hidden from everybody. I mean, this is a complete nonsense and it's attached to the super intelligence framing. It was just a mm-hmm. completely wrong metaphor that totally ignores the history of all technologies. And actually, this is one of the core motivations for me in the book is that I had time during the pandemic to really like, you know, sleep and reflect and really deeply think, okay, what is actually happening here on a multi-century scale? And what are the patterns of history uh, around how inventions end up proliferating. And it's really stating the obvious. It's almost like ridiculously simplistic, but it needed to be said that actually, as soon as something as an idea is invented, millions of other people have approximately the same idea within just weeks, months, years, especially in our modern digitized world. And so we should expect, and as we do see, the open source movement to be right hot on the heels Hmm. of the absolute frontier. And so, I mean, just one small example of that to give an intuition, GPT-3 was launched in the summer of 2020, so three years ago, 175 billion parameters, and is now regularly being trained at 2 billion parameters. And so that is a massive reduction in serving cost, you know, that now means that people can have open source versions of GPT-3 that have broadly the same capabilities. 
right, but are actually extremely cheap to serve and indeed to train. So if that trajectory continues, then we should expect that what is cutting edge today, frontier models like ours at Inflection and, and like GPT-4, uh, GPT-3.5 even, will be open source in the next two to three years. And so what does it mean that those capabilities are available to everybody, right? And I think that is a great thing for where we are today. But if the trajectory of exponentially increasing compute and size of models continues for another three, four, five generations, which we all expect it to, then that's a different question. We have to step back and honestly ask ourselves, what does it mean that this kind of power is going to proliferate, proliferate in open source, number one? And number two, how do we hold accountable those who are developing these mega models, even if they are centralized and closed, myself included, OpenAI, DeepMind, etc.? And if you just look at the amount of compute, it's predictable and breathtaking. And I think people forget how predictable this is. So going back to Atari DQN, we developed that model in 2013, and it used two petaflops of computation, right? So uh, a, a petaflop is a billion million operations, right? So imagine a billion people each holding one million calculators each and doing a, a complex calculation all at the same time pressing equals, right? So that's, that would be one petaflop. And Atari used two petaflops over several weeks of computation. A decade later, the cutting edge models that we develop at Inflection for Pi, our AI, use five billion times the compute that was used to play Atari DQN. So mm. 10 billion, billion, million. <laughs> Um, it's, it's just like now, now you're sounding like really, Ali G. So that, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 basically ten yeah. orders of magnitude more compute in a decade. So mm. one order of magnitude every year. So ten x every year for ten years, which is way more than Moore's law. Everyone's familiar with Moore's law: seventy years of doubling, doubling mm -hmm. every eighteen months or whatever. I mean, that's that is minuscule by comparison. Now, of course, there's a very hand wavy, crude comparison, but roughly speaking, it gives you a sense of what an exponential is if it's happening every year. Now, So, so the point you're making now is that even if Moore's law peters out, you can't ignore the scale of the compute we can keep adding to the, the picture here. Yeah, we're scaling up the compute because we're connecting more of these chips together. Yeah. So, and, and, and everyone sort of, people often say Moore's law is petering out, you know, I think that that's a sort of misframing because the doublings might take slightly longer, but they're still progressing at pace. So mm. in, in a decade, you know, we'll, we'll still have, it, it, basically a dollar will buy you 100 times more compute just on Moore's law. So forget about daisy chaining them together, but a unit of computation will cost you 100x. Uh, you, you're, for, for each dollar, you'll get, a hun, you, you'll get 100 times more compute in a decade. So Moore's law is still uh, on, a, on a super powerful trajectory. And if you add that with, you know, daisy chaining the models together in these mega compute clusters, you can start to see where we're headed. I mean, the other thing that I think people forget is that GPT-2, GPT-3, GPT-4 has become shorthand for understanding where we are in terms of compute classes of models, right? But three to four doesn't, doesn't remind you of the important fact that that's an order of magnitude of computation. So it's, it's 10x larger to get to four. Right. And to get to five, it's 10x larger and six and seven. It's 10x. So 
you know, at inflection, we have now compute that will allow us to train a model that is 100x larger than GPT-4, 100x, or two orders of magnitude. Mm. So so just to catch people up, Inflection is your new AI company, which um, you started with, uh, I think Reid Hoffman is a backer. And you're also, you've partnered with Reid at his venture capital company, right, at Greylock? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So I should have mentioned, yeah, Inf- Inflection yeah. is co-founded with me and Reed, and also with Karen Simonian, who's my friend and, and our chief scientist, who was at DeepMind for seven years. He led the deep learning scaling team at DeepMind and worked on AlphaGo and Alpha, AlphaGo Zero, AlphaFold and so on. And so that's right. You know, we, we have been also focused on scaling these models up by you know, a couple of orders of magnitude. But, but my broader point was, not only are the models getting larger in centralized, you know, efforts like mine in labs, but the open source is just a few years behind. Mm. And so I think that's going to be fine and actually not just fine, but it's going to be incredibly good for productivity and wealth creation and value creation for the next five to 10 years. Like I, I really think it's just going to deliver huge amounts of value. We have to be responsible in the way that happens. I can talk about some of the details, but roughly speaking, it's going to be amazing. What, what raises concern, I think, is when we get to 10,000 times more compute than GPT-4, so you're talking you know, a GPT-7 or 8 or 9, right? that is going to be an incredibly powerful system. And if those are, are, are massively open sourced, and if the, if the big labs aren't properly regulated, then we're exposing ourselves to you know, the risk that these models don't serve our collective best interests. And that's, that's the real challenge. What does that mean in practice? How do we do that? But that's the effort of containment. If open source is so close to the best closed source models and seems likely to remain perpetually so, how, is there, how does this not just subvert the logic of the gold rush here and, and, the, and the business plan for all of these companies, including your own? Because I, you can imagine that with a, with a few more scalings, 80% of the best model will be good enough for almost any purpose, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And it remains to be seen. So the question is whether 80% is good enough for a production use case, right? So we've actually seen this in facial recognition or text-to-speech for many years, you know, is that it, the, the, the difference between an 80, 80% performing model and a 95% performing model or a 99% performing model is actually the difference between commercially productive and nice demo. So, mm. so that's the first question. I think the, the second question is, will, uh, will these models be open sourced at, at, in two or three generations time? Because they'll be very expensive to train. And it's, it's not clear that even those who are open sourcing them today, like Meta, for example, will want to continue doing that. And, you know, so I think in terms of the differentiator, I think with all of these things, scale and speed is the critical piece. And so the, the challenge, the objective for a company like mine is to, you know, make sure that we use our edge, our, our advantage in the market of being first now to build a great product that, that people love. And that's what we're doing with, with our personal AI pie and mm. what we're working on. So um, I want to talk about the risks here and how we we mitigate them. I, let's return to the, the the first one we started with the, this concept of of labor disruption. How do you see us mitigating this problem that 
more or less seems inevitable to us. So I think that we have to wrap our heads around the fundamental need to continue with large-scale redistribution of value, whether that is by taxation or by universal basic income or universal conditional income. You know, this is going to be a huge part of the story that helps us to manage the transition. Because even in the most optimistic case, there are going to be significant numbers of people who have to transition their, their roles. They'll need to retrain, learn new skills, and they'll need support to make that transition, both in education and in you know, social welfare and subsidization while they're retraining. But isn't even the, the concept of retraining a fig leaf for what is very likely coming? I mean, when I think about this, I think that we just need a, a fundamental reset Again, again, this this is just imagining what this looks like in success, right? We we just create this technology that more or less produces wealth on demand and cancels the need for much, if not most, of human labor and e- even human cognitive labor. It seems that we just need to break this default ethical and political and economic norm that links everyone's claim on existence to the the need to figure out how to produce something that other people will pay them for i mean that that is that is what secures your claim on your right to exist in most capitalist societies you just you know if you can't figure out how to create value for other people such that they're willing to give you money yes we're going to create a social safety net that's going to try to prevent you starving on the sidewalk but we're not going to do a very good job of that and we have this underlying ethic which suggests really you shouldn't, even if you take the help that is offered, you have to find something profitable to do eventually. Otherwise, we're going to not want to help you all that much. But it seems to me that in the presence of success here, we just have to embrace the fact that human drudgery is a thing of the past and we're all potentially on vacation for much of the rest of our lives, and we have to figure out how to enjoy those vacations, right? We have to find meaning in life that is not coupled to the demand to do something, you know, that is, quote, work that we would otherwise not necessarily want to do, but we have to do it in order to survive. I mean, those of us who found work that is more or less synonymous with what we would do for free if we didn't have to work, you know we're we're incredibly lucky but it, it offers a glimmer of what's possible here you can just you can figure out what you would do if you were free to do anything and then just do that thing in the presence of this perfect technology i honestly completely agree with that and that's actually you know a core mission of of this effort i i think that it is a good thing that people have to struggle with the challenge in the future of figuring out how to spend free time. Like I think that would be an amazing achievement for reducing human suffering. And you often hear people say, well, work is our source of meaning, it's our source of community, it's a source of who I am as a person and my identity. And that's true. You know, there may be a, some painful struggles to transition away from that if that really is, you know, your your primary identity and interest, but many 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 people, like you say, do the, the, work is 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 a real pain in the ass, and it's and it's drudgery. And people have many many other passions that they would want to pursue. And I I think that 
would be an incredible achievement of humanity if we could relieve people of the shackles of work they don't want to do and you know or maybe they don't they don't do it full time they just do you know do it part time or occasionally here and there and i i think that's a great vision that we should be getting behind but to make that work we have to focus this ourselves on how we redistribute the proceeds of 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 radical abundance because you know setting aside the 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 downside challenges that we have to mitigate the upside really is phenomenal right and it should if we're successful massively reduce the cost of producing food massively reduce the cost of producing energy and you know make super high quality healthcare you know widely available to everybody not just in the west but worldwide and i i think that's a really plausible vision for for 30 years time the question is how do we make sure that we are able to capture the value that is created there and you know essentially tax it and redistribute it at huge scale yeah so that this is the the near term dystopian picture that shadows us even in success here where you you just you, you picture extraordinary wealth inequality of a sort that befits only a a third world dictatorship and kleptocracy where we have trillionaires uh, who are close to the GPUs and some extraordinary spike in, in unemployment, and we haven't created the political and ethical and economic context in which to pivot and correct this, what is in the end really just a, a ludicrous own goal, right? I mean, just if this technology is working and it's doing you know, you'll stipulate it's doing only good things. The, the only bad thing it's doing is that it's doing good things so well, so competently, so reliably, that we don't need people to do those good things anymore because people are just screwing these projects up or, or you know, adding noise to the system. It's like the analogy to chess, right? At a certain point, the computers get so good at chess that even bringing a human grandmaster into the, into the deliberations is just adding noise. I don't know if we're quite there yet with chess. I, I would imagine we we are. I had a bet with Gary Kasparov about, I don't know, four or five years ago that human cyborgs would eventually not be as good as just, uh, you know, unaided computers. And, uh, you know, I stand by it, whether we're there yet or not. Beyond just raising taxes, what arguments do we have to win here on the redistribution front that will prevent some kind of crazy Gini coefficient from being true of the U.S. and every other country that that begins to succeed here. Yeah, I mean, firstly, just to kind of lay a little bit of the historical context, because this isn't just about AI. This is about you know the increasing efficiency and 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 productivity of science and technology in general. So, if you look out over the last century. The amount of labor required to produce a kilo of grain has reduced by 98% already. So this, this trend has already been happening and it's very predictable and observable. But, you know, I think the other thing to sort of keep in mind, of course, is that although we've made huge progress on, you know, things like poverty in the, in the US, I think it's like halved since in the, in the post, you know, Second World War era, there's still 40 million people who live in poverty. So although no one wants to really talk about the question of taxation and wish that there was an alternative, you know, there's, there's no silver bullet that I can pull out of the bag here. I mean, this is like 
fundamentally about redistribution of value. And I think that the good news is that we do have levers that can adjust the pace of the transition. And unpalatable as it may seem today, we may want to throttle the pace of the transition to introduce friction. And that in itself is a containment strategy. So, for example, like, you know, labor is taxed at 25% today, approximately in the US on average, right? Whereas like software is taxed at about 5%. So there's this imbalance. And obviously, if you raise the tax of something, then it's going to be slower to adopt and slower to make the transition. And if you reduce the tax, it's going to make, it's going to ease the burden for, for that sector. And that's what you could do with labor, right? So that would be one way of slowing things down that wasn't directly about taxing the value, but it would be about trying to, essentially the transition that we're making is that labor is becoming capital mm. and, and we're, we're essentially turning intelligence into this sort of entity, capital, who, whose returns to which compound far more quickly than the improvements and returns that compound to, to labor. So that means that you know, if, if intelligence is now this asset, this commodity that can be bought and sold, that can accrue additional value to itself, just like capital does, then that has the potential to accelerate in its power really, really quickly. So the challenge for the next 20, 30 years is, is how do we moderate the pace of that change so that we don't end up in the dystopian world that you described, where we leave behind very large chunks of the population. And, and I think, realistically speaking, that in itself is quite unlikely, because Thankfully, we do have a democratic system and people will fundamentally object if we're right, if I'm right in my speculation over the next couple of decades that, you know, the unemployment rate is going to increase. Just to be clear, we're at all time levels of employment. So, you know, we, this is clearly not had any impact on the labor market today, any material yeah. impact. So it's very much a prediction, a speculation that might be wrong. How do you think about the concept of regulatory capture here because so there have been many people voicing cynicism around the calls for regulation coming from people like Sam Altman at OpenAI because on one level it's it's quite refreshing to have the pioneers in this field say come regulate us because this is getting dangerous but many people view this as essentially a way of I mean, so like, like in the one hand, there's this distinction we've already spoken about between open source and closed source technology. And certainly it's, people think that declaring the, the open sourcing of this a risk could just be a way of monopolizing the, the closed source technology. But there's also claims that playing up the dangers of existential risk, which Sam and, and Jeffrey Hinton and other people have done to some degree, this could just mask more of the near-term and guaranteed harms of misinformation and model bias and other things that, that, that we, we've, we're currently unable to prevent. So how do, you, how do you view the cynical reaction to, or you know, the skeptical reaction at least, to calls for regulation coming from inside your industry? I think that reaction is, is quite unfair for a number of reasons. I mean, first, I, I happen to know Sam pretty well from our interactions over the years, and I know him to be a very high integrity person, and I think he sincerely makes those statements, and they're not some kind of clever game of manipulation. Mm. I can speak to that for what that's worth. 
But I think, secondly, I think it's self-evidently the case that, that a new crop of us CEOs of technology companies, Anthropic included, you know, have tried to put these issues on the table for many, many years, right? So it's, it's this, this didn't just happen with ChatGPT. We've all been working on, you know, the ethics and safety of these models for a long time. You know, we at Inflection founded the company as a public benefit corporation for what that's worth. I mean, it's a, mm. it's an experiment in trying to make sure that, you know, we have a legal obligation to do the right thing and, and consider the impact of our work on people who aren't just our customers, which is traditionally the only way that you can make long-term decisions in, in the current shareholder capitalism system. And so it doesn't solve all the problems, but it is definitely a good first step, I think. And OpenAI have experimented with their structures, Anthropic have done the same. So I think that the, I think it's important to encourage experimentation and risk-taking when it comes to you know, governance and thinking about these ethics and safety questions and try to not let the cynicism of, you know, the populist age or the social media age, whatever you want to call it, mm. you know, sort of infect us too much because, you know, it's like people often are pretty harsh on the Facebook oversight board, you know, and I, I personally, look, there are clearly weaknesses with it, but I think it should be encouraged. This is a great sign, you know, our political process is clearly not working fast enough when it comes to establishing new legislation. I think there's a lack of ideas when it comes to regulating the social media companies. No, no one has like an obvious, okay, this will clearly address the problem between balancing freedom of speech and the need for, you know, security. So, you know, I think that we should praise and encourage when companies take chances to experiment and so on. Regulatory capture is clearly still an issue, right? So, I mean, you know, that, that is part of the political process in the US that billions of dollars are spent on elections every cycle. And that's a huge problem. So, you know, I, I think we should continue to be skeptical about that part of it whilst being encouraging of people who are trying to experiment with the tools that we have available to us. Well, let's talk about the, the misinformation piece here, because this is one of these downside risks that seem more or less guaranteed to be coming. And, you know, as you say, we this is a problem we haven't figured out how to solve on social media and elsewhere, even in the absence of the supercharging of it through AI. But now when you imagine, you know, in a few short years or even months or weeks, turning the most powerful language models and, um, you know, deep fake generating technology loose on um, almost perfectly fragmented properly shattered political and information landscape in the, in the U.S., that certainly is the case. It seems like we could create a, um, an information ecosystem that, that could just make us politically ungovernable, right? I mean, we just have this insuperable bar to clear when attempting a fact-based conversation about anything that is politically polarizing now. It's just, it seems impossible to get people to agree about what is real. And one worries that that's only going to get harder when someone can just open up, you know, GPT-5, say, and, and say, you know, write me a hundred journal articles in the style of Lancet and JAMA and Nature Genetics, proving that mRNA vaccines cause birth defects. And it's just easy to see a, a time 
again, this, this is not 20 years out, it's probably not even two years out, where much, if not most, of what purports to be information online could be fake. And the, the ability to tell the difference between real and fake will, will be, be playing catch up with the technology that allows us to produce credible fakes of all kinds, you know, whether it's text or images or video or what do you, you think is going to happen in the next few years here with respect to this kind of running off the rails for us? And how do you think we're going to mitigate the problem? Look, I, I think your framing is unfortunately correct. The costs of production are about to go to zero marginal cost. And that is a, a huge deal. Anyone who is looking to synthetically engineer a new propaganda campaign or a new you know, form of persuasion of any kind, both good and bad, is now going to have an easier time of it. And that is going to extend to full videos. I think we've already seen it with audio and text and images, and the combination of those will, will create an incredibly powerful suite of tools. So look, I, th I think that there are some basics that will naturally happen. For example, I think that increasingly we're going to have to watermark content that has come from a, a specific source, whether it's a brand or a government or a business or an individual. Mm. And actually the upside here, the bright spot, is that because we have centralized platforms, you know, they are the gatekeepers to the watermarking of content. So it will be an, a verified account on any one of the platforms, you know, Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is that you're using to broadcast your information. And that will come with a, you know, cryptographically signed key in the content when it gets moved around. And I think people will just learn that they shouldn't and cannot trust content that hasn't come from that source. Mm. So is this so, an image of kind of newly empowered gatekeeping? Or are you imagining some kind of democratized version of this technology where it's, you know, blockchain or otherwise implemented so that this digital watermark can be available in, in ways that don't kind of redound to the advantage of the traditional gatekeepers. I mean, it's like, well, one way this could go is, you know, you, the, the, you can only trust an image that comes from Getty Images, say, or, or you can only trust, I guess, with a, with a single producer, you know, if, if take my case, like, you, you, you're only, you're only going to be able to trust an image of me or, or the sound of my voice if I have released it under my yeah. own wa watermark. Otherwise, you can be pretty sure it's been manipulated by somebody. How, how do you envision this actually rolling out? Well, in, in practice, I think we're going to have to rely on the gatekeepers to drive this and do a lot of the implementation. I don't think the computation for the signing is going to happen in a distributed way, like in blockchain and so on. I think that's just un unlikely. Mm. But I think there are lots of good precedents that we can use to give us confidence that something like this can work with independent verification. So for example, take the certificate transparency effort, which basically replaced the, the centralized certificate authorities, which sign a website to prove that it is the real website that you know, you, you're going to visit. And you know, that, that is now a cryptographically verified, independently audited public infrastructure. And you can imagine a similar version of that, where although it is principally signed by the gatekeeper that the signing process has an independent verification mechanism that can, that can prove that 
you know, they have signed it in the correct way. So I, I, th- I think that it's more appropriate to think of pragmatic hybrid efforts where you have independent verification rather than thinking it's going to happen in a completely decentralized way. Hmm. And, you know, we already trust and rely on big centralized providers for authentication and password management and verification and so on. And, you know, largely speaking, they, they, they do a good job and, and, you know, we will need to continue with, you know, those kinds of methods of encryption to give us comfort and security. I don't think it's going to end up happening in a fully decentralized way, even though in the very long term or the longer term, it would be great if, if we did have those kinds of methods. Okay, well, let's talk for a moment about further malicious use of this technology. And maybe this is a good point to bring in your concerns about synthetic biology. Maybe there's a word or two we could say about the connection between AI and SynBio, as you see it. Well, synthetic biology is on a similar trajectory of decreasing cost and complexity. You know, it's sort of well known that we have learned to read strands of DNA and the cost of doing so has fallen by a million times over the last 30 years. But now with the arrival of CRISPR, we're able to write new strands of, of DNA and that's getting increasingly cheaper. So with a benchtop DNA synthesizer, you can now print so that is like essentially manufacture or synthesize, create you know, new strands of, of, of DNA and, and indeed new compounds if you're skilled enough. And what this trajectory means is essentially reducing the barrier to entry, just like the rest of the trends that we've been describing, to be able to synthesize novel compounds. And on the whole, that is going to unleash you know, a huge new wave of experimentation and productivity. But of course, that does make it easier for some psychopath who's looking to play around with with smallpox, which has now been, you know, eradicated. But uh, uh, you know, at, at the time, or you know, w- w- you know, o- over the many decades that it was uh, around, it killed something like three hundred million people. So it is possible to imagine that you know people who really like a a school shooter, for example, a mass shooter, you know, might turn to these new tools to make it easier for them to carry out their crazy maniacal you know ideas and and that again is this proliferation question so how do we you know monitor those synthesizers both their locations and you know what they're capable of producing to the best of our ability to make it not just illegal to do these things because that's clearly not sufficient but to make it practically harder for people to go off and potentially cause that kind of harm yeah the there's an asymmetry here, which is just hard to to overlook once you see it, which is we're talking about technology that is giving any individual or, or tiny group of individuals more and more leverage and, you know, that which is to say power. And the asymmetry here, which is really disconcerting, is that this is synonymous with saying that it's getting easier and easier for one psychopath or a small number of ideological lunatics to create larger and larger harms for everyone, right? So like, you know, 500 years ago, it would have been impossible for one person to wake up on a Wednesday and decide they're going to ruin the lives of a million people, right? You just can't create that much mayhem with a a crossbow or whatever you had, you know, or or a musket or whatever you had in your arsenal at that point. But as technology gets more and more powerful, 
it becomes conceivable for one person to decide to synthesize a bioweapon that is perfectly tuned to start a lethal pandemic, right? It's not just poisoning people on a subway, Om Shinrikyo style. It's now, you know, we have a virus that is engineered to have an incubation period that's long enough and benign enough that it just spreads stealthily and everyone wakes up dead. That's conceivable. And there's just this asymmetric reality that it it just seems always easier to break things than to fix them or prevent anyone from breaking those things. And in the presence of this kind of technology, that asymmetry is only growing. So I, I just don't, how do you maintain a feeling of, you know, optimism is the wrong term, but just um, even agnosticism with respect to where all of this is headed in the face of that, that asymmetry? Yeah, I, I think you you put it really well. I mean, a, a, asymmetry is exactly the right, right way to to think about it. Like one sort of obvious example is how the power to broadcast in social media has become widely available to everybody in the last twenty years. You know, you no longer have to be you know part of the establishment, be a you know accredited journalist, you know, join a uh, a newspaper, and in the traditional way, you you can now you know accrue millions of followers on you know social media and 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 broadcast your knowledge and everybody now has the power to do that if they're you know good enough and willing and so on and you know over the next sort of 20 years or so that will flip to everyone then having the power to you know use asymmetric tools that have that same one to many kind of broadcast effect so you know you're right i i think that that is i think the the darkest side of where things could go wrong in the next few decades is that this is an inherent proliferation of that power. Everybody will get access. And some people have clearly demonstrated themselves to be the kinds of people that want to cause mass harm, either intentionally or because they're, you know, reckless and chaotic and, and you know, don't think about the consequences. So this, I think, is really where the key parallel is that, you know, from, from terms of comparing synthetic biology and its asymmetric impact to AI and its asymmetric impact, mm. and, and in time, other technologies. Uh, how do you view the, so part of what you're arguing for here is that we take what you describe in the book as a narrow path that allows us to escape, you know, tipping over into, you know, one or another dystopian future, either the, the, the chaos of no successful regulation or the dystopian kind of totalitarian lockdown of too much top-down control but containment is a um suggests some you know as you described earlier adding some friction to the system at you know opportune points and yet we are in an arms race not just internally in in the west you know one company against another but i think most obviously with with countries like china how do you view the, the kind of the geopolitical prospects of creating a, a regime that would allow for uh, global containment? Well, I think it's, it's easier to focus on the example we've just been talking about in synthetic biology and, and, uh, and an engineered pathogen, or, or even a, even a non-synthetically engineered pathogen, hmm. uh, one that has been resurrected you know, from the dead like smallpox. But you know, you could well imagine, 
you know, efforts to make smallpox more transmissible. I mean, it is, quote unquote, only as transmissible, I think, as as some strains of COVID, but it has a mortality rate of, you know, much, much higher. I think it's 30x that. Hmm. So that is a mutually assured destructive incentive, which destruction in incentive, which should hopefully, rationally speaking, drive some cooperation between us and China and other states. Because, I mean, clearly, if, you know, many tens of millions of people have the capability to synthesize compounds like that, then the risk and probability that someone's going to do that massively increases. And so we should look for areas of cooperation and where, where there is a, a mutual self-interest in, in doing so. That seems like the first obvious easy step. The second, I think, is particularly with respect to China, is that we've got to temper this hyper-aggressive, sort of frankly warmongering with China and you know this, this kind of paranoid fear that it's about to take over the world and conquer us. And you know, if you just sort of start from a slightly more empathetic perspective and imagine what it would be like to have the most powerful nation in the world, you know, 100 miles from our shores in New York, you know, essentially supporting a breakaway small nation, you know, to, to threaten us and surrounding us with other allies, you know, we, we would feel pretty threatened, right? So, you know, and I'm not a sympathizer or something like this. I mean, I don't want to get into that kind of language. I mean, I think Taiwan is an incredibly valuable asset for us, not least because of the fact that it has TSMC, the most important chip fabrication facility in the world. I think it makes about 70% of worldwide mm -hmm. chips. So it's a pretty critical asset and we have to be pragmatic and not to say that there isn't some adversarial tension, but we've got to figure out ways to wind down this hyper-aggressive rhetoric. Otherwise, we're going to be in deep trouble, not least because we, we want to avoid a major war, which would be hugely costly for everybody, but because I think we need to cooperate on other important strategic areas like these, these kinds of issues. But do you see us slowing down from our race condition with respect to developing this technology, all the while knowing that China is not going to slow down, or I guess there's probably other countries that we could add to that list. Um, it just seems like we're we're in an arms race. I mean, there's a, we're, I think we're more in touch with the the gold rush component of this. Just watching the various companies like your own just develop the technology because of the obvious business use case. But when you look at it globally, and you look at the to take just one strand here, the defense implications of becoming the preeminent AI power, or even just being six months ahead of everybody else, if you consider the, you know, the, the cyber uh, implications of it, it's hard to see how we slow down without an assurance that China and everyone else who's at the forefront of this technology is taking the same prudent steps to slow down and, and figure out how to deal with these emergent risks. It, it is. And that, that is the great dilemma of the next 20 years, is, is figuring out if we do need to slow down, and we may need to at some point, how do we do that in a coordinated way that reduces this, this adversarial tension? And there are practical elements. So aside from the politics of getting people to agree that this was the right moment to coordinate some slowdown, assuming that agreement was in place, big assumption, but as just assuming 
there are practical ways that this can happen. So the, the chips that everybody uses to train these models are largely manufactured by one company, NVIDIA, which is an American company, which almost entirely uses TSMC to manufacture its chips, which in turn uses ASML to manufacture the core lithography machines for TSMC. So there is a supply chain here with a series of choke points, which can be, you know, sort of restricted and monitored and so on. And, you know, that is potentially a, a, a way of cooperating with China itself, because we've, mm. we've already imposed export controls on China's access to the next frontier chips. So the new H100 that gets released after the current version, sort of late next year, most likely, isn't going to be allowed to be sold to China. It's mm-hmm. a remarkable intervention. It's just incredible, hyper-aggressive restriction of their capabilities. I mean, you know, arguably already a declaration of, of war in some sense, basically saying we're going to deny you access from, to the frontier of, of this incredible technology. So, you know, we're, we're already, we've already taken the first steps towards friction or containment. And then the question is, where does that go next? Does that apply to other nations? Does it even apply to allies? Does it apply to certain companies? But clearly, access to the chips is the critical choke point here. It seems quite strange that there's only one company building the chips and one other company building the, the semiconductors required for the chips. And it's just it's like you got to think this is going to spread, right? I mean, this technology, the, the intellectual property can't be so arcane that no one else can figure out how to build equivalent platforms, right? I mean, that is actually a really fascinating paradox here, which is that these three key elements in the supply chain, you know, from ASML to TSMC to NVIDIA, are all basically monopoly players. I mean, they all have 70-ish percent of their markets. And replicating that is years and years and years of effort. And obviously, China is going to be spending hundreds of billions of dollars now to try to do that. But mm. many of the commentators believe that, that China will still be five plus years behind. Some people say even 10. So I mean, they have to have spies in all these companies already, right? I mean, they, like the IP must be jailbroken, right? I mean, you, you would... You, you would think so, especially in Taiwan. Yeah. But I think that, that everyone's assessment is that this is going to materially slow them down. And so it just gives you a sense of how knowledge can evolve in hyper-fast time when it is manifested in bits in the space of ideas of you know, digital information. But when it is manifested in atoms and it like requires the f- physically moving around objects in the real world and doing this very, very high-precision manufacturing, Mm. then it really just does create enormous lock-in, at least for this snapshot in time that we're at at the moment. Well, Mustafa, it is fascinating and all too consequential. So um, I just want to thank you for writing this book and I wish you the best of luck with the the launch. And I think we will have more to talk about. So I I look forward to the coming emergency and uh, future conversations with you. It's been great. Thanks, Sam. It's been a lot of fun. Looking forward to the next time. 